and we are recording on Wednesday. Recording in March progress. 8th, 2023 at 4.07 p.m. Eastern Time, episode 1131 with Mr. Mark Mix. And this is only the second time I've done this, and I don't like plugging stuff because I feel gross, but I have to start doing it. Guys, if you want to support the show and you're watching this on Rumble, there's a red button. It's called Locals. Join it. You can go support the show. Exclusive stuff, whatever. Um, but that's not the point of this. Here with Mr. Uh, Mark Mix. Mr. Mix, please introduce yourself, sir. Yeah, no, Tommy, thanks. It's great to be on with you. You can call me Mark. Um, people call me a lot worse than that, but that's my first name. So let's uh, get that out of the way. Um, it, it's really a pleasure to be on with you to talk about the issue of right to work. I have uh, dedicated my life. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. To the idea of individual freedom and personal liberty when it comes to the American workplace. And Believe it or not, Tommy, going back to the 1930s, we have laws on the books that allow union officials to compel you uh, at the as a condition of employment to pay them a fee in order to work in America. You know, you think of this grand experiment in self-government and that's and predicated on individual freedom. And you look at labor policy from the Roosevelt administration and the Roosevelt years, and you see that the federal government not only grabbed huge gobs of power from the states, but they did it in a way that creates compulsion and force in the American labor market. And today I was uh, I was down on Capitol Hill today testifying in front of Senator Bernie Sanders uh, of Vermont, a socialist. Um, and he has a completely different worldview that doesn't square with our view about individual freedom. Tommy, we believe if you want to join a union, have at it. Give your entire paycheck to a labor union if you choose to do so. But don't ever compel or use the power of government to force someone to support or join a private organization as a condition of working. It's wrong. Americans know it's wrong. And we're going to fix it. It just takes time. And we do that by talking to people like you. So I thank you for the opportunity. Well, thanks for coming on here, man. And uh, yeah. And <clears throat> if uh, so, one thing I do on this podcast is I love to play the devil's advocate simply to have some sort of, I agree with everything you're saying, by the way, but I always try to play devil's advocate because if it's just two people agreeing with each other, then why watch the show? <laughs> right? right. You, you no, just read please. it. And, yeah, you can just read it. If I just put up a, the America's the best and then you came on and you go, it is. Well, that's the show. You don't need to watch for an hour. Just read the title. Sure. So um, so let's just, just to play devil's advocate is, um, is so obviously, you know, not all unions are bad. Yeah, and if you want to go do it, go do it. Go, you know, go wild. That is the freedom. What you're saying is, is that there is, I mean, this is kind of the opposite idea of a union where it's for the workers. If the very thing you're doing for terms of employment is you got to pay up, right? Yeah. So that is, in it, that is in itself mafia-esque. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, union officials will talk about it. They Somehow they believe that by forcing everyone into a collective that – they know better than anybody else. And, and it's really interesting because today we had the the uh, president of the AFL-CIO, we had the president of the Teamsters Union, and we had the president of the Service Employees International Union at the table testifying. And Tommy, I'll tell you what, there there is there is no better way to make America great, uh, to use a term that somebody else coined, um, than put everybody in a union, force everyone into a collective. You know, and that's the rhetoric of the other side. They, you know, 
everything revolves around this collectivism, this idea of, you know, saying everyone has to be in the collective, whether you agree or not, you have to be part of it and you have to pay for it and you have to support it. And the history of labor unions in America is not a bad one. It's a good one. In fact, you know, people often say, well, unions had their time. They back in the remember the late 1800s, early 1900s and, you know, all of the, the abuses of workers. Well, I say this about that. Unions had their time. They have their time and they will have their time. As long as employers mistreat workers, workers will try to join together collectively to amplify their voice in the workplace. And there are laws in place today, probably too many laws, unfortunately, but laws in place that protect their right to do that. I mean, the National Labor Relations Act that I mentioned in the outset here in the introduction is a bill that passed in 1933. Franklin Roosevelt came in, Great Depression, you know, you never let a good crisis go to waste. So the federal government imposes, tries to impose a federal labor policy. They introduce what's called the National Industrial Recovery Act in 1933. Well, that gets challenged at the U.S. Supreme Court. It passes the House, passes the Senate, Roosevelt signs it. Challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court by a couple of, well, I think four Jewish brothers in New York that were raising chickens and selling eggs in a case called Schechter Poultry. They basically said, how dare you regulate our business? How can you tell us how to do all these things um, when we're not interstate commerce? We're totally in New York City. We're selling our product. It doesn't go outside the state. Everything happens right here. We're trying to be honest and, and inconsistent with Jewish law about how we prepare our food, all this. And the court, the Supreme Court agreed with them on a six to three vote. I think it was six to three vote saying, you're right. The National Industrial Recovery Act is unconstitutional. Well, that didn't stop Roosevelt. He was destined and, and basically driven to pass this amazing increase in federal power over the states. You know, we had this argument back in what, 1787, 1788 about how powerful the federal government was going to be compared to the states. Well, instead of taking these lumps, he introduced a bill again, basically the same bill that imposed this labor policy on the country. This was called the Wagner Act in 1935. And so it passes the House, passes the Senate, Roosevelt signs it. And in the meantime, he goes on and does one of his fireside radio chats and talks about the tired old men on the Supreme Court. At that time, obviously, there were nine members of the Supreme Court. But Roosevelt knew, and everyone else who studies the Constitution should know, that Article III Court does not set the number and size of the Supreme Court of the United States. It just says you'll have one. So it is perfectly perfectly uh, possible that we pack the court. And you've heard a president talk about that recently in context of this. And so Roosevelt does his tired old man speech. Uh, Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes gets the clue, gets the hint, along with Associate Justice Orrin Roberts. They switch their votes on the Wagner Act and they uphold the National Labor Relations Act. All of a sudden, unions have this federally granted privilege, not only to force you to join, to formally join a union, but to pay dues to keep your jobs, allows them to strike the strike. The, the labor disputes and the labor uh, unrest in the country grew astronomically. Unions grew exponentially. And it wasn't until 1947 when the United States public said, what have we done here? And we need to change it. They came in and passed what was called the Taft-Hartley Act which put some limitations on union power, but it gave us the ability and gave states the ability to pass what are known as right to work laws. And just to follow up on that introduction, what we did, we talked about a right to work law is really simple. I mean, really simple, Tommy. And it's a good thing because I've been doing it for 36 years and, and not complicated is very important to my shallow and limited mind. But here's the deal. You can join a union, right to work laws, protect your right to join a union, participate in a union, associate with a union, but they will not contemplate you being fired from your job because you don't want to support an organization you don't agree with. It really is that simple. And real quick, what, what was the line you just used to your shallow and what mind? 
I don't. What did I call it? I, I forgot already. <laughs> There's a second word, shallow and something. I, I was going to steal that. I was going to because I don't limited, always, maybe. Limited, shallow I don't and know. limited. I, I always, yeah. I always, you know, because I, I have, I always coin, you know, my simpleton mind, my caveman, but I like that one, shallow and limited. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna plagiarize yeah. that. Um, yeah. So, and again, so, <clears throat> you know, myself, I, I, you know, I grew up in a, in a loving household. Parents still married. I went to private Catholic school my whole life. So again, for my own self, I have to stay a little. You know, I got into medical school and still had the luxury to say, I don't want to do that and go pursue something else. Like I despite hard work and I do work very hard, I'm also aware that I don't have the life that I think the vast majority of people in America have had, including, you know, work, working at a, at a at a paper mill for your entire life. So I have to be aware of my own lack of experiences on, on unions and the importance of them. And I definitely get it. I mean, I just I just finished uh, Upton Sinclair's book, um, The Jungle, ah, last month. And you re- you read that and you go, I'd always heard it in like, you know, middle school, they reformed a lot. And you read it and you go, okay, now I'm sure it's a bit exaggerated. But the point is, is so there is a place for them. But what you're, yes. get, what you're getting at is almost, it's almost the antithesis of it though, right? It's, it's the idea of the union is to not be, Per Upton Sinclair to not be bullied by these larger than life oligarchs, which adjusted for inflation, they're worth like three hundred billion dollars. But that's the idea of the union, right? Is let's all get together, we become a David to fight the Goliath. But if you now have to join and have to pay, or you'll be denied work, how is that any different than just being screwed over by the oligarch? Do you get what I'm saying? Like it's oh, have, you're you're onto something there, Tommy. Have, have, Stick with that line of thought. Absolutely, you, no, it's exactly right. One, one sec. There's there's a there's a meme. Sorry to interrupt. There's a meme though, and it's about a, it's, I think Russia taking over Poland after World War II or something. And there's a meme where it's like we're finally free from the Nazis, or we're finally free, free from a tyrant. And it shows a Russian soldier going more like under new management. And it's right, and then it comes the Cold War. It kind of seems oh, so we're free from the, the the small elite at the top controlling our payment and what we do. Kind of under new management. That's what it's. Is that what you're getting at? Am I am I picking it up? Absolutely. You know, I'm a little bit older than you, Tommy. Obviously, so I, I'm going to quote the 1971 song by the Who, "Don't Get Fooled Again." Yeah. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah. And that's that's really um, what's happened in the union movement. They have been granted so many privileges over the American worker that they don't really care about customer service anymore. Tommy, if you could force everyone to listen to this podcast, I mean, everyone had to tune in, be live, and they had to they had to subscribe and su- support it. And then you could go to the advertisers and say, look at my following. Because it was compulsory, you wouldn't care about showing up and doing quality work like you do because everyone would have to be here. Yeah. That's the problem with forced unionization is you give these people power and they abuse it. You know, John McClellan, the senator from Arkansas during the Landrum Griffin hearings in 1959 when they were talking about union corruption, and how unions had grown so powerful in the country. Uh, they they kind of maxed out in 1956 about at 33% union density in the country. So they were really powerful. He said that compulsion and corruption go hand in hand. And he that makes perfect sense. If you can compel someone, you don't have to worry about customer service. I liken it to, you know, my, my daughters, I have five daughters and they like to bake. And, and you know, when they're baking things, whatever it is, they, they're really sensitive about making it really good. And I use the, the anecdote about, so if you're the local baker in town and you're the only bakery in town and everyone has to buy their croissants from you, how long are you going to spend making those croissants every morning? Are you going to get up at five in the morning or four in the morning and make sure they're ready at six for that first wave of coffee and croissant drinkers, you know, and, and eaters? No, you're going you're gonna to do it on your own schedule because you're the only game in town. And union officials have gotten that monopoly power over workers 
And they're the only game in town when it comes to kind of amplifying your voice um, if you choose to do that. And that has led them to be wards of government action. And that's the problem. They're, they're so reliant on government power. They spend all their money on politics. They don't even care about what happens on the shop floor. I grew up in a union household, Tommy, just to give you some perspective. My stepfather was a 32-year member of the machinist union. Uh, my mom washed dishes in a school cafeteria. She had to be part of the Civil Service Employee Association in New York. My brother was a fourth grade teacher in New York. He had to give money to Randy Weingarten of the American Federation of Teachers in order to be in the classroom in fourth grade, teach fourth graders. So I have a little bit of this experience in my my life. I I ended up working in a ceramic factory in a midnight to eight shift, uh, loading pellets into a kiln during school. I mean, we didn't have a union. You know what? I just tried to work hard. And I think there are a lot of Americans that want to, to basically work hard and get a leg up. But when they run into a situation where, okay, you got to be in this union, and the only way you can make more money or make any progress is to stay longer based on seniority, not on what you produce or how well you do something, those types of systems can't work unless you have total government control. And they, have, they're not, they don't have total government control yet, but they're working on it. And, and it, it really is scary when you think about taking away a choice of an American worker, someone who has skills, who has talents and has drive and energy and wants to succeed. I mean, Tommy, how many stories have you heard of that? You know, and I hate to use this because uh, AOC was was had a difficulty with pulling yourself by up by your own bootstraps. Apparently, you can't really do that. Um, you can use the metaphor, but you you can't physically pull yourself up by the bootstraps, according to AOC. But how many stories do we have of that? And this is a country that allows that to happen. And allows you to work hard and to 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 have you know to to make things and build things and and build yourself up and you can do it if you have the energy to do it. We've we've used unions have used themselves of putting themselves in a position where saying, look, all you got to do is show up, and if you stay here for twenty years, you'll make this much. If you stay here for thirty years, you'll make this much. If you stay here for forty years, you'll make this much, and maybe get a pension. Maybe that doesn't incentivize good behavior, great behavior. It oftentimes protects bad behavior. And it brings everyone down to this kind of medium of where we are from a, from a standpoint of energy and pr productivity. Those are problems. And if we had voluntary unionism in the American workplace where workers who wanted to join a union could do that, they could amplify their voice, but you wouldn't be compelling and basically collecting others that don't want to have the union speak for them in a union workplace. They could negotiate on their own. We, I think that works better. And that's part of the mission of this of the right to work movement that uh, I've been privileged to work for for 36 years, Tommy. I know I don't look that old, but here I am. It's, and I think it's important to to clarify what that that's what you're saying is it's not destroy every union. It's you have a choice, right? Because it's, again, there's a, there's a comedian I love and he, he brought up this idea. He's like, no one ever really, he's like, no one on like the radical Marxist side ever thinks of like, what happens when you've overthrown the government and you set up a Marxist institution? Do you think the people that gamed the system, the you know the heads of the intelligence agencies, the heads of the corporations, the, do you think they just go away? Do you not think they're not going to game the same system too, but now they're going to have state power behind themselves instead of just corporate? So that's how I look at it is you can't abolish them because there is a obviously a very rich history of complete and utter taking advantage of, of workers. That is, that's just, that's, that's American history at the very least. However, the idea of the, and you also can't have nothing but unions because that's, that's kind of the same thing just under new management. It's the idea that if you want it, you should join it. And if you don't want it, 
maybe you go farther on your own. Maybe the union goes, maybe you're working there for five years and you go, dude, the union guys are moving much farther ahead than me. And then maybe you join. But the idea should be that if the union is so crappy and they're pulling everyone down, that you don't have to be a part of it. You can go do your own thing. And that's, I'll use my own little example. I went to Valdosta State University for the first two years of my college, 2009, 2010, and I was in a fraternity. And I was like, oh, this is great. We're all going to work hard. And I lived in the frat house. And very quickly, I realized that uh, I was cleaning everything and no one else was. And we all had to pay our dues, but not everyone did. And some people paid more for alcohol than others. And some people brought more women to the party than others. And uh, it took about one year in the frat house to go from partying frat boy to I want nothing to do with this. I'm going to be a doctor and transfer schools. I'm looking out for me and myself only. And I did. And I went and took care of myself. So I have like a very real experience of like, we're all in it together and being like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go be a doctor. You guys do whatever you want to do. That is, but the idea is I didn't eradicate fraternities. And I also didn't eradicate going on your own. The idea was I went with what I wanted to do. And that should be the freedom. Let the best thing win. Correct. Yeah, I, I think that's a good example. I mean, union officials use that argument oftentimes against right to work. They say, well, you know, if you're not paying union dues, you're not paying your so-called fair share and you're getting all the benefits of, of unionization. You know, that's a topically attractive argument until you turn that first shovel of dirt. And, and whether it be cleaning up red solo cups at the fraternity um, or whatever it is, I mean, when you turn that first shovel of dirt, you understand that, that it basically tamps down lots of things. It keeps people, it holds people in place. It protects the weakest. And, you know, the idea of this benefit that unions confer, is it beneficial that you can't get a, a raise in a workplace that's unionized until you're there for five years? I mean, so Tommy, you're good at what you do. You make eight widgets. I make three widgets an hour. Okay. We're both in the same shop. We're working together and you came on board. You're making eight widgets an hour. I'm making three. And, uh, you know, we're both in the union. I've been working here for 36 years, so I'm making 35 bucks an hour. You're making 17. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to continue to make eight widgets an hour at 17, knowing that I make three and make $35 an hour? No, you're either going to stop producing, you're going to come down to three, or you're going to move. And you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to go find a new widget manufacturer, and I'm going to be the best widget maker I can be. And but yet in a union movement, the only way that you can be compensated or remunerated in a way that's equal to my remuneration for making three widgets an hour compared to your eight is to stay longer and get to my station in life, if you will. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it doesn't make sense for workers either. You know, one of the things we need to realize is that only six percent of the private sector workforce in America have decided for whatever reason to join a union. That means 94% of the workers in America have, they have the choice to do it. They have the chance to do it. I mean, if you listen to Bernie Sanders, he would say that that's impossible because corporations are so greedy and so unbelievably bad and whatever. But the bottom line is if they want to join together, the laws are on the books today for them to join together and amplify their voice in the workplace through unionization. But they get benefits too, believe it or not. Now, hold on, because 94% of the private workforce is not unionized. They get vacations, they get paychecks, they get benefits. They get 401k plans. You know, they get uh, union officials would have us believe that nothing possibly good can happen to a worker who doesn't have the protection of a labor union. And, you know, they're sincere in their beliefs. They're sincerely wrong, but they're sincere. And I, I bless their hearts for that. And not in the Southern sense, bless their hearts, really bless their hearts. It's it's really important, you know, that they believe that. And they're as passionate about their work as, as I, I think I am about mine. But 
The difference is individual liberty and freedom versus coercion, compulsion, and force. I mean, we basically cede force to government. That's the one institution that we as Americans have said, you can use force in the operation of, of what you do. But no other organization should be, could be, or deserves to be granted the condition of force in the American ideal, the American experiment of self-government. We recognize that. That's why we have our First Amendment rights. I mean, today I, I, I got Senator Sanders a little bit agitated because he started talking about a constitutional right to organize unions. And I, after I had my chance to talk, I said, Senator Sanders, you're, you're obviously talking about the First Amendment that was basically adjudicated to mean, in, in the case called NAACP versus Alabama in 1958, Supreme Court says meaning the right to associate. I said the corollary of the right to associate is the right not to associate. You can't have the right to associate unless the right not to associate exists. It's just logical. And I, I mean, I'm not sure where that landed in his mind, but the bottom line is this. If you're going to demand the right to associate, you have to have an exemption for those who choose not to. And that's the First Amendment constitutional right. So this idea that, you know, everyone must associate with this group once they're in. And, and Tommy, one important aspect of unionization is less than 10 percent. We think roughly around six or seven percent of all union members in the country have had the right to vote on whether or not they want to be in union. So, I mean, 94 percent of current union members have never voted on whether or not they want to be in because they come to work in a union shop where the union's already been established and they just come into it. They never voted for it. They never asked for it. They just came in and they worked there. And that's fine. I don't begrudge them that point. But the bottom line is this. If you go back in and you say, you know, are you interested in being in the union? I, I don't know. I guess we're, it's just because it's already here and I like what I do and the protections. And I don't have to make eight widgets an hour. I, if I make three, I make this, whatever, to go to go back on that last anecdote or metaphor that we that I tried to work through and maybe not successfully. But he, here's the deal. I mean, the idea of, of the right to associate presupposes the right not to associate. And if we just had that understanding with the left, with the union bosses and the union officials, we'd have a whole lot better understanding of what labor policy should look like, as opposed to this one size fits all. Everyone's got to be in, be in the collective. Whether you like it or not, you're going to pay us. Whether you like it or not, we're going to speak for you. Whether you like it or not, you can't talk to your employer without us present. Whether you like it or not, you can't have a grievance with the uh, adjudicated grievance on your own that we can't be part of and we can't veto if it violates a contract. That's what labor law looks like in this country. It's it's unfair. It's unjust. And the only thing that solves it is volunteerism. You know, Samuel Gompers, you may have read about Samuel Gompers in your textbook, uh, Tommy. You know, he was the father of the American labor movement. He was started kind of the guild system in the 1890s. He was the president of the AFL until 1924. In his final speech in El Paso, Texas, Samuel Gompers stood in front of the delegates of the AFL and he said this. He said, the workers of America adhere to voluntary, are, are, love voluntary institutions. They they love volunteerism. And if we try to force them into unions, we will destroy that which left to voluntary means and to individual rights is stronger than anything else that we could put together. Because people come to us because they want to be part of it, not because they have to. And that's common sense. We know that, you know, if you're going to join a club, if you join the frat, you know, you like, you, you're really excited about it at first until you found out what it was like. And then you realize, hey, this is not all it's cracked up to be. I got to get out. That's what we should allow American workers to do when it comes to unionization. And we don't, unfortunately. And then <clears throat> to play devil's advocate, we can walk out the fraternity <clears throat> analogy is at Valdosta State University, a small school in southern Georgia with with five bars and I think six fraternity houses. 
there there was there was a value to it, right? I mean, we we're in South Georgia, it's 100 trillion degrees. We had a pool. I mean, that was definitely there was all right, there's some there's some negotiating rights. I mean, who who gets the most sorority girls by default, it's going to be the people at the pool. All right. Um Valdosta is not a big city. It's very tiny, so you pretty much have the fraternity houses and then you have kind of, you know, upperclassmen's their own homes, okay? The fraternity houses are within walking distance of campus and the bar. All right, those are some more selling points. The other houses are far away. You got to get a designated driver. There is a lot of pull there to do that. I personally didn't want that, and I left. Everyone else I knew was in there, and they were fine. But there wasn't a whole lot of – there was some, but there wasn't a lot of incentive to stay there. Now let's go to the University of Georgia when I was there. 33,000 people, a million beautiful women, far out of your own league. Number one party school in the nation. I think 116 bars and two square miles. You know, a D1 football program. ESPN's there on Saturdays. This is wild. Now, what are the fraternities there? Massive three fraternity houses in in Valdosta were. They're just homes. There's like three bedrooms. Georgia. I mean, that was your that was your American Pie column plantation style home insane parties cafeterias a hundred bedrooms they own you know they buy out entire bars have all the sorority girls they have like the cool seats i was never in one there but there's real incentive to go to those fraternities no matter how much it sucks no matter how much the dues are no matter how bad pledge ship is i mean i was pre-med there were guys in there that they just had old tests and it was like there was a lot of incentive to go there that in the free market yeah, had I started at the University of Georgia, I probably would have stayed there. The whole, I probably would have stayed in a fraternity the whole time. There was a lot of benefits there. However, I, again, didn't want to. I wanted to go be a doctor, whatever. But, again, we're talking about this free market to where, you know, what do they call people that aren't in fraternities? GDIs, GD independence, right? God blank independence. I know your kids are yeah. so we'll keep it clean. But, but you could still be an independent. And in a matter, as a matter of fact, the vast majority of people we're still independent. And there are things you can do that you can't do in a fraternity. You can't, you know, do X, Y, and Z because it looks bad on the fret. All right. But there's a reason why they're still there, and it's because they have genuine pull in a very cool college town. All right. But it's the freedom to choose. And if you don't have that freedom to choose, then it's not freedom at all. And you might say, well, how about the people behind these? How about the people behind Right to Work? How do we not know that they're not puppets for their corporate masters? We don't know. So let's play it out and just devil's advocate. Let's just say they are. Well, then you'd still want unions to have the freedom to form on the off chance that the people that don't want to be in unions are nefarious actors. So just assume the worst. And the only logical conclusion is, or you might say, who are, who's behind the who's behind the unions? Maybe that's a, an enemy corporation and they want to make, maybe Microsoft wants to make Apple weak. So Microsoft is going to push for unions and apples. You have to assume that as well. All right. You know, high fences and locked doors make good neighbors. You have to yeah. assume the worst and then go, we don't know who's a nefarious actor and who just genuinely wants to be in a union or genuinely just wants to do, do their own thing. The only conclusion you can make is that you have to have the freedom to choose. Yeah, you know, we get accused of that all the time. And in fact, I was accused of it today of sure. being a stooge of corporate America. And, sure. uh, and you know, union unions in this country uh, are a $25 billion a year business. 
And uh, we raised, I think our Legal Defense Foundation last year raised just over $7 million. If we're a, cool, a tool of corporate America, then I ought to be fired from my job because uh, <laughs> the resources don't match up. Let me say this, though, Tommy, we punch way above our weight. I, I guarantee you that. And uh, that's why they have to cast asparagus or aspersions on us all the time, because we punch way above our weight. We got 21 attorneys here uh, through this wall, if you can see it, uh, that do nothing but represent employees in the American workplace. We sue employers, too. In fact, you know, one of the things that uh, we've had a couple of, of lawsuits against companies that are just unbelievable. They we have one against Southwest Airlines that we just finished and a jury decided that our client, uh, a flight attendant who was fired from her job by the union, not by the employer. The union, actually, the union requested, demanded that she be fired. The, the company complied. The jury decided that that, that violation was worth $5.1 million um, in, in punitive and compensatory damages to our client. Obviously, that number didn't come. It, it, we, she's not getting all of that because of the nature of, of the litigation. It's still ongoing. But we sued the company there, and the company fought back, and we beat them in front of a jury of, of their peers and our client's peers. You know, if there's a union in the country, in a, in a company, it's probably because the company deserves it. That's probably in, in looking at this over all these years. And I mentioned the legacy unions that are there that, you know, seven or eight or nine percent of, of workers have, are the only ones that have ever voted on whether they're in the union. When they unionize a company today, generally the employer's probably done something wrong that has led the employees to go find someone to help them. And that's what unions are supposed to do. However, when you use the government to basically dramatically increase the power so that unions can go out, for example, Tommy, we're fighting legislation and have fought it, whether it be in the courts or in legislate in, in Congress, the idea of, of how to get a union. And one of the one of the ways unions want to do is they want to impose what's called a card check union unionization project, where you basically union officials and union organizers can go to your house at night at 10 o'clock and they can come to the porch, knock on the door and say, hey, Tommy, we want you to sign this card. And it's a little four by six card that says, I'm interested in unionization. You don't know this, but they do. If you sign that card, that's a vote for unionization. And all they have to do is get a majority plus one of those cards, hand them to the employer, and they want that would force the employer to recognize the union without a secret ballot vote. So it's possible in a workplace of 100 people that 49 people don't even know that there's a union drive going on, but they get 51 signatures, they present it to the employer, and all of a sudden everybody's in the union. The union speaks for everybody. And the first thing, a mandatory subject of bargaining, the moment the unions recognize, they have to negotiate over what's called a union security clause. And when I, I use those terms, because that's exactly what it is, it secures the union in the workplace by saying that everybody, Tommy, you, me, and the 98 other workers have to pay union dues or fees in order to keep our jobs. If we don't pay union dues or fees within 30 days of that contract being signed, the union will request the employer, not request, they will demand the employer fire us from our job. Not, not because we're good and you make eight widgets, you continue to make eight widgets because you're, you know, you're conscientious about this stuff. I make my three. You don't pay the union. You say, you know what? I'm not getting anything from the union here. I don't want to pay. 30 days later, you will be fired from the job. You could be the best worker. You could be the best, worst worker. You could be a middling worker. If you don't pay the dues, you're fired. That's what the law looks like. And, you know, <laughs> you don't win friends by forcing them to pay you for something. For example, let's talk about the Keystone Pipeline. If you remember that debate, you know, President Biden, uh, admitted, well, I think during the Trump years, they they allowed the Trump, the uh, Keystone to go on the construction of it. That was every single job on the construction project of the Keystone pipeline was a union job. They were union rank and file workers running the operating engineers, running the backhoes, the bulldozers, the trucks, everything about it was a union job. 
The International Brotherhood of Op or the International Operating Engineers Union knew that Joe Biden had said on the campaign trail that he would shut it down the moment he got to the White House. Yet that union gives majority, almost all of their political contributions to a president. This is money they collect from the rank and file workers who are driving the bulldozers and running the loaders. And they take that money and they give it to Biden to become the president of the United States. He wins within the first week. He shuts down the Keystone Pipeline and puts every single union rank and file member on the unemployment line that next day. The next day, how do you feel about your money being used to support a candidate who wins office as the president that ends up putting you on the unemployment line? That's not the type of thing that you should be forced to support, be compelled to support, or should have any reason to support. But yet these union officials here in Washington, D.C., their stock and trade is political power. They're more interested in what's happening here in Washington than they are what's happening on the pipeline project in Nebraska because this is where their power is. It's been granted by government and they've got to do everything possible to protect it, to keep that, that business going. They don't have to sell product anymore to workers. We believe that if it was voluntary, they would actually have to provide services to workers and say, here's why you should join us. I think that's reasonable. I think that's fair. I think that's what Samuel Gompers was talking about when he said that the workers of America support voluntary unionism. And if we get back to that, I think the unions will have a great future ahead of them by providing great services to workers, getting in the benefits of those frat houses in Georgia offer um, and saying, come join us because we got all this for you. Yeah. Um, and people will join, they will come. You build it, they will come. But yet unions rely on compulsion and force now and that's just the wrong recipe. It doesn't work. Yeah, it absolutely is. And you know, if you can, if you can genuinely offer something, then yeah, you know, well, yeah, where did the frat house offer? Well, you're 18 years old. You're showing up in a college town. You don't know anyone. You just come from being a senior in high school. You're the big man on campus, and now you're the little man on campus. You're scared out of your mind. Your first time moving away from your parents, and you're, you're two years, three years before you can buy alcohol. What does the fraternity offer? Well, my good friend, <laughs> new friends, you're now buddy-buddy. I'm a GDI, Tommy. Yeah. I was a GDI. So, yeah, well, I was I both. Know. Well, I got to live both, so I can, I, I commiserate with everyone. So what does the fraternity offer? Well, uh, parties. You don't have to go make friends. Here's a new. All these guys are your age too. You're also friends with the guys that have been here two, three, four years. They're the big men on campus. You're gonna be hooked up with all the sorority girls, and uh, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna party like there's no tomorrow. Don't worry about alcohol. We're buddies with all the bouncers at the bars. There's genuine reason to join, but you don't have to join, and you can leave whenever you want. The problem the problem with forcing everyone to do that though is it does bring everyone down to a shared misery and. You know, maybe it does work for like like really bad job. Maybe if it's like plowing or lay, you know paving roads in northern Alaska in January. Maybe the only way you're gonna get that going is if a bunch of guys get together and go, "Hey, none of us are doing this unless you pay us less more than you know, under fifty an hour." Hey, pr it probably works, but even that's the free market sort of choosing its thing right some and like the fraternity you know the one in valdosta is i eventually had to come to philosophical peace with they didn't want to make it better i wanted it to be bigger and better and i realized most of them if not all of them were okay with it kind of being a crappy frat house kind of dirty not really cleaning anything and just enough to go on and i couldn't wrap my head around why they didn't want to constantly improve but eventually i had to come to peace with that is what they want and they're okay. It's none of them are complaining about it. They're all okay with it. And I'm the minority. And they're not wrong. 
this is just right for them. They're okay. I still love them. They're a lot of my good friends, but they were okay with just barely passing classes. They're okay with just that frat house, just paying the bills. They're okay with the furniture being disgusting. And I wasn't. And it's not that they were right and that I was wrong or that I was right and they were wrong. It's that we had a difference of opinions. So what did I do? I graciously left. And that's the thing. And some people might be okay with putting out a D effort, barely making enough money to get by. And if they're okay with that, then that's okay. Like I don't, I'm my own boss. I do whatever I want. I interview everyone I want and I work like an animal. A lot of my friends are, they're married with kids. They have a home. They have a nine to five. And I look at that and I go, I couldn't do that. But then they look at me and they go, I couldn't do what you do. They're like, they're like, I like the guaranteed paycheck. They're like, I like, I like knowing where my dinner is. I like knowing that I get home and the kids are there. And it's not that we're right or wrong. It's that we want different things and that's okay. But the importance is they are free to go work that nine to five and I am free to be a crazy person who wears slippers and yells at a camera for a living, right? But again, it comes down to freedom. Is that is that accurate? Am I anywhere close to the mark? No, I, I think that's right. And I, I this is the first time I've ever used kind of a frat house as a metaphor for- <laughs> It's a good one. Uh, so thank you for that. I This is a, a new, kind of a new experience uh, for me, but no, you're absolutely right. The problem is, Tommy, is that you you had to gracefully leave your, you had to leave in order to to basically achieve what you wanted to achieve. Let's say, for example, you could have stayed there and you could have created a you could have talked to the head of the national frat to kind of continue this and said, hey, I want to do a membership drive. I want to do this. I want to get new furniture. I want to do this. I want to stay in there and 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 grow it and make it bigger. Um, but I need to do I need to do this on my own. Um, you know, I've got no one else has the energy to do it or it doesn't seem they want to do it. The only thing that I can do to solve this problem is I I have to leave. And union officials say that all the time about people like that support right towards say, Well, you could leave. You don't have to work here. Well, some people love that job. They love their jobs. They they're good at their jobs. They they not only are they good at their jobs, but they like the nine to five. They like the guarantee. If union unions can offer that, um, and they can say we can protect that, but we can also give you room to grow, so that all of a sudden, instead of getting patted on the back and say, "Hey, Tommy, slow down. You're making us all look bad by making eight widgets an hour," they say, you know, you say, "Well, I I want to continue doing this." You decide. But the easiest thing to do is just drop your productivity to the point where it equals what's happening in the shop. And to your point, I mean, if the guys don't care that the furniture stinks and is ratted and they don't care that the, the frat house smells like bad beer, and it smells great at evening, so mornings that are problematic. I mean, as you know, because you cleaned up. So those are the things that are, you're absolutely right. I think the metaphor is useful. But the problem is you, you and you made the decision to leave that, all of that, because you had no opportunity to make it better. You had no opportunity to to basically excel there, um, or to to I- implement your vision for a bigger, cleaner, you know, more powerful uh, identity on the campus. You had to leave in order to achieve anything else, and that's one of the issues with with monopoly union representation is that everyone has to be the same. You can't stick out. You can't make eight and expect to make more because if the employer pays you more. That's an unfair labor practice. You get charged at the National Labor Relations Board for violating the contract. The union comes in and says, hey, Tommy, you can't pay Tommy more for three or five additional widgets every hour. You can't do that. The contract says he has to stay here this long and you can't make him make eight. You, you can only make him make three, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one of the one of the, the kind of conflicts with the idea of forced monopoly unionism is that it, it makes people like you, productive people like you, in order to achieve more, in order to be better, in order to improve yourself, 
You've got to leave that environment. We think that you ought to stick around and you ought to bring, you ought to try to pull all the, all the people up and say, look what you can do if you just follow my lead. If you make eight, if we all make eight, you know, the employer is going to get really excited. We'll have a better contract perhaps. Um, as opposed to just saying, look, it's three years, the contract's expiring. Here's the new the deal. We had, a, we, this is a great example. We had a case on behalf of a, a young lady uh, in Latrobe Specialty Steels near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The United Steel Workers represented that workplace and the contract, the existing contract had expired. They were trying to negotiate a new contract. So the union goes to the employer, negotiates a contract, and they take it back to the rank and file workers and the rank and file workers vote it down. They don't like it. They say, we don't want it. So the union, the, the, the workers get together. And they say, you know what? This union is not doing us any favors. We need to get rid of them. So they file what's called a decertification petition with the National Labor Relations Board to remove the union from the workplace. The workers have, they have to get 30% of the workers to sign a petition. Then they have to have a vote and they have to get a majority of those voting in order to throw the union out. Well, the union finds out that they filed a decertification petition. So what does the union do? They go back to the employer, they negotiate a secret contract and they make sure that they say this contract is now in force. They take it back to the employees just because they thought it would be good for them to do. The workers voted down a second time. But the reason why they did that, Tommy, and the law allows this, is that they could got they, they got the employer to agree to a contract that basically would say the decertification election couldn't take place for now three years. You had to stay in the union for another three years, pay union dues, even though they'd voted the contract down twice. The union argues that they have no obligation to let the workers vote on the contract. Their constitution says there's no requirement. The collective bargaining group said there's no requirement that the workers get to vote on this. So the unions, in order to protect their union security and to protect their dues flow in a non-right-to-work state of Pennsylvania, they literally went around the back of the people they claim to represent and ratified a contract. The good news is the contract didn't have a start date and an end date. So the NLRB said, well, that contract's not a real contract. So the workers got to vote, and sure enough, they voted the union out. But that's the kind of union activity that we see under this labor policy. And Tommy, we represent literally thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of workers. And in, in our since 1968, our Legal Defense Foundation has literally represented hundreds of thousands of workers who have objected to that type of behavior by union officials. And that behavior is a result of their unique powers and unique privileges under the law. And... Um... when you think about that individual that's always just gonna always just gonna work harder is um you know moving into an apartment with my friends at the university of georgia we had a much cooler place um and you know that was all well and good and then even trying to get into medical school and getting into medical school i found the same thing i'd be I like i loved organic chemistry because i had like a 99 in the class and i think this class average was a 44 and wow. i and the professor was like, if one student's capable of this, then everyone is, so there's no average. So I ruined a lot of people's like senior year. I think they had to retake classes. But eventually, <sighs> even then, getting into medical school, there was this still this general idea of there's also this, it doesn't matter how hard you work, like you're only going to be paid so much. Like you will be, you know, there's a ceiling to that. And again, that's all well and good, but I didn't want that. I also really wasn't passionate about it anymore. But the point is, is, the individual that works hard is always going to find a way to go keep working hard because it's it's part of it's just part of me. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's just who I am. From when I was little to building Legos, my brothers would get tired. I would build through the night. It was just it's just what I do. I don't know it. I don't question it. It's how God made me. Whatever. It's above my pay grade. Amen. The people that are going to work hard are always going to work hard. 
And if they can't work hard in that fraternity and not be rewarded for it, by definition of being a hard worker, they're going to go take uh, the path of not least resistance. They're going to transfer schools, pack up all their belongings, and drive seven hours north. Why? Because they're a hard worker and they're not afraid to go do that and start anew. So the hard workers will always be hard workers. And if they can't do anything in this union, they're going to go, like I am right now, start their own thing. And let's say you let's say you outlaw that and you make it so you can't start your own thing. Then they're going to leave the country. And now you are seeing how other countries have viewed us for the last 200 years. The hard workers will come here because, hey, I can go get my own. And that is what this is. They will always go find their own way. And it's just what it is. So in a weird way, it is almost a... It's like, a, it's like a higher form of natural selection. If people yeah. want to work the hardest, they will support your association and they will fight back against this. And if no one supports it, then technically, I guess the unions win. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's kind That's of right, some higher order, weird philosophical stuff, but. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, but your point is well taken. I mean, we survive here at Right to Work on, on voluntary contributions. We're the disposable part of disposable income, basically. And so. <laughs> We can't compel anyone to support us. We can't uh, we can't require anyone to support us. But we're supported because we have a lot of former union members and current union members who support us. We have a lot of conservative, philosophically sound, you know, free enterprise, uh, free market people that support us. Um, and we have a lot of folks that have gone through it, created businesses, created things, created opportunities, and created jobs that have come up against organized labor, and and they remember those fights. And they remember, you know, a private third party organization trying to come into their workplace, take control of it, get in between their workers and them when it comes to, you know, their work. And they don't like that. I mean, you know, the those type of people you're talking about, Tommy, have they, they've got certain characteristics that, uh, you know, someone comes in and says, hey, I'm taking over your business and you have to talk to me now how to run your business. Um, there's a lot of folks that don't take kindly to that. And, you know, whether they're anti-union or whatever, doesn't really matter. What they're for is they're, and, and hopefully they're taking care of their employees because that's the secret. I mean, if we want to end forced unionism in America, just take care of the employees. It's really kind of a simple concept to the point that you can. I mean, obviously when, you know, Starbucks workers are asking for $25 an hour to brew coffee and serve coffee, I mean, there's a really simple kind of economic equation that comes into play there. I mean, I have daughters that love coffee. I love coffee. I drink lots of, I drink too much coffee. I don't drink Starbucks coffee. I don't think it's that good, but, but you know, if you're going to, how much are you willing to spend on a cup of coffee? If the, the, the core labor cost is $25 an hour for the person making it, what do you think a cup of coffee is going to cost? I mean, no one connects that. Everyone thinks, well, everything's just disconnected. You know, the idea of the cost of labor is a, is a line item on a balance sheet and an expense statement. I mean, you have to pay people to create things and and you pay people what you what you can and what you like. You know, you're risking you're risking your money for a profit. You set your goal on saying, OK, I want to make 10 percent. So when you price a cup of coffee, you, you take your 10 percent profit, you take your cost of coffee, you take your cost of rent and electricity and, you know, and your coffee maker and your your grinder or whatever. And then you add that labor cost on it. And all of a sudden you come up with a price when you price yourself out of the market like unions try to do. I mean, they're not, you know, uh, some are, some aren't, uh, no reason to go into that too much detail, but think about what happens to a Starbucks when they, when they have to charge 12 or $15 for a cup of coffee. I mean, the good news is, is the market will respond and, and Jim and Beverly's coffee shop will grow up. You'll, you'll, in fact, you'll go back to that college town and you'll start a coffee shop because there'll be a market there that's available for a 
higher, you know, same quality, better quality, lower price product, and it'll go on. If you can stop that, if you can put, you know, barriers, government barriers on that, now you've got a really nice business model. Uh, like my bakery example to begin with, if the bakery, the government says, I'm the only bakery in town, huh, good luck getting a good croissant or a good muffin. You're not going to get one. Yeah. Yeah. Man, it's making me think more and more. Maybe the key to all this is just go start a defense contracting company. I think that's the move, right? You're the only one in town. Hey, you need tanks, baby. I'm the only one here. You know, Eisenhower, maybe he was right on the nose as the ultimate union, the military-industrial complex, right? Corporate socialism at the highest level. But, yeah, it's it, it's kind of hard to break apart. It's I think if you want it, I try to look at it as a positive thing. Is it's the ultimate fight for if I'm going to pride myself on being a hard worker, then it's the ultimate fight, right? Go find the thing that works then, right? If that's what I like, if I like the climbing to the top of the mountain, then I want the hardest fight. I want to see how far I can go. That's what this is. And it's just, you know, it's, it's probably a philosophical fight as well. And it's also the understanding that there are trade offs, right? I mean, being the pre med crazy person I was or doing this podcast now. You know, with this podcast, it's not stable. It's not guaranteed. It's very lonely. Do a lot of work <laughs> all on my own. I'm emailing people and getting turned down, listening to audiobooks. But, you know, you see that hour of me talking to you and we're laughing. There's 23 hours of me just working, quietly tinkering. Is it going to work? You know, existential. What am I doing? I could have been a doctor. What? Oh, man, all my friends are married with kids and I'm doing what? I'm doing a podcast and slippers and I'm trying to what? And it's like, it's very lonely and it's very scary. But I also accept that this is what comes with the territory. I don't get the the comfort and that concrete solidity of I know I'm making this much a year. And I know if crap hits the fan, I know I get this much unemployment or pension or I get like a six-month whatever to find a new job. Like, it's going to be here. It's 9 to 5. I get in the car. I go get my overpriced coffee, blah, blah, blah. And that's I get that. That, that That's a comfortable thing. I genuinely get that, and I'm not crapping on it. But at the same time, if you're in that kind of mode, you really don't have access to the spark or the flame of let's take this thing to the moon or let's, let's rapidly change directions. Let's stop interviewing those people. Let's do them. Let's take the money I was going to spend on alcohol for the next three months and we're going to upgrade the <laughs> camera instead. And if we get a higher resolution camera, maybe that will make it look more professional. And then when I pitch other guests, they'll look at it and they'll go, he's got his audio visual down. Maybe he has got his head screwed on, right? And it's all these, it balances itself out. It's wildly terrifying. It's uncertain. And I have no idea what tomorrow holds. And it's also very lonely. But... There's an animal inside me that loves the whole, well, what if? Like, what if? And that's fine. But I don't demand consistency. I don't demand stability. And I don't demand comfort. Vice versa, if you want all those things, the union's fine. And I get that. You might just want the 9 to 5. However, don't get all upset when the guy making 8 widgets goes and starts his own company and puts you out of business. It's just... It's what it is. But ultimately, it all comes back down to this. You're free. No one's putting a gun to my head and telling me to do a podcast and be an entrepreneur. No one's putting a gun to my friend's head and saying you got to work nine to five. Right? 
Right. And Tommy, how many how many great stories have we heard about and seen the results of where the person starts out lonely and scared? <laughs> yeah. and 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 they started out lonely and scared and and frankly they're not lonely anymore and they they wish they were more lonely than they are i i think at this point some points when they when they make it but most of those great american stories those great stories of of people that create things build things that have the energy or you call it the animal inside of you i mean those stories having the opportunity to do that is what this is all about the opportunities for you to make those decisions and yeah every great story i think started out with lonely and scared those lonely, are, those are two attributes scared. that you you share with literally <laughs> literally literally others so you know and you to your point i mean you can stop being lonely you can stop being scared yeah. maybe but uh it's your choice you're going to choose whether or not to do that so and then there's the caveat is uh the other part is the reality is, is i'm always lonely and scared so i'm like i might as well get something out of it i'd be lonely and scared in a nine to five so to me i'm like there is no safety anyway so i might as well just go for gold but and there is kind of a beautiful symbiosis is if there is freedom to choose the people that go out and make those giant companies, right? That they're lonely and scared and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, they then actually provide an infrastructure that requires people to go do a comfortable nine to five. So it's like, <laughs> we can all be buddies. <laughs> the crazy animals can go do their thing. Somebody has got to go run the servers at Microsoft. Like, Nine to five. Like it all works out well. If you try to if either side tries to erase the other, it will result yeah. in destruction for everyone. Yeah. That's right. And that's what Bernie Sanders was talking about today in their in our hearing. I mean, he was talking about, you know, the absolute uh decimation, if you will, of corporate America unless they comply yeah. with all the rules that uh that he lays out for us. I mean, it, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, union officials who oppose right to work, for example. One of the elements of right to work is the most basic is individual freedom of it, that we give workers, we try to give workers the choice to say whether or not they want to associate with the union. But the other part of it is the economic impact of right to work. I mean, if you look at the 27 states that have right to work laws today, they have double the private sector job growth. They have 10 times the growth in the manufacturing sector, which, you know, Joe Biden calls the high paying good jobs, all of that. The economic data is getting so unbelievably um, one-sided when it comes to right-to-work laws. You think about automobile companies, where they're operating. They're in right-to-work states in Texas and Tennessee and Kentucky and Georgia and Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, North Carolina, um, all over the country. They're they're going to places where there's a little more of a kind of a pro-business atmosphere and a pro-freedom atmosphere. And so the one question I have for most youth officials is, how do you get new members? Well, you get new members by either organizing an existing plan or you go to new job opportunities, new growth opportunities. Wouldn't you want a manufacturing plant come to your state with 6,000 new workers so that you could go convince them to join a union and make them union members and make them dues-paying members, voluntary dues-paying members? I would say yes. It's kind of a no-brainer in my view. But yet they want to basically put a cap on everything and say, ah, if you don't do it our way, you don't do it anyway. Again, there is this like just almost like law of nature. I almost feel like we're watching Animal Planet. And it's like the entrepreneurs will move to the new ground and start a new company after the old city has been destroyed by socialist union makers. And then the next spring, the union makers will arrive. It's like it's like it's like gnats on the back of an elephant. Like they go make the new company. Right. Everyone's fleeing to Texas now and Florida. They're all leaving California, New York. And in a couple of years, the union parasites come and they follow them, too. And then give it 10 years and all the entrepreneurs will leave Texas. They'll go to montana or new hampshire and 
maybe it's just it's just this kind of like philosophical wave of it's just going to go on forever. Well, know. you can do voiceovers for National Geographic, so that will be you. that's my fallback. That's my fallback. Okay, all right, yeah. If this doesn't Good work, deal. yeah, no. Yeah, I don't yeah, have yeah. a fallback. That's the terror of this. Yeah. Um, well, that that's scary too, right? Horrifying, yeah. always horrifying. Yeah. But it's worked out so well. It worked out so well. It's worked out so far. I hope. But um, yeah. Mr. Mix, we're uh, we're coming up on an hour. Um, where can people find you or find uh, your association? All that good stuff. Just yeah. website, right to work. Yeah, they can find us on this amazing internet thing that we have here that uh, you know allows you to to be lonely and scared at least for until <laughs> it grows to be big. And we're at nrtw.org, nrtw, November Ram, Romeo Tango Whiskey dot org. Uh, that's where you can go find information about your rights in the workplace. We have our attorneys that will provide free legal services to you. If you have a case that fits kind of in our mission statement, we can help. Um, if you want to follow legislation, what's happening in Washington, uh, D.C., or in the state capitol in your state, you can find us uh, that information on nrtwc, uh, nrtwc.org. That's the committee's website. That's where we do our legislative work and our lobbying work. The legal side is nrtw.org. So great places to go to get questions answered about this. Awesome. And... Uh... We've been talking about the, you know, this the whole time, but I guess in the last minute, what about you? How are you doing? How are you, how are you doing independent of all this? How's Mark? How's Mark doing? I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. I, I love what I do. Tommy, you know, wise man once said, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And uh, I've worked about a total of six days of my life. There's been six days. Well, today's actually one of those days. So we're, we're, we're really struggling. I had to go up against Bernie Sanders and we got a big fight out in Michigan trying to defend the right to work law out there. So today's, today's a work day, but Look, it's um, it's been wonderful. As I mentioned, I grew up in a union household and and to be able to defend workers who have ideas about growing themselves and getting better and doing it in a, in a context of their choice, not someone else's, has been very, very rewarding. I You don't meet many people that have been at the same job for 36 years anymore. I'm one of them. I'm a dinosaur. I haven't got a watch yet or anything like that. So, you know, I, there's still hope. But uh, yeah, 36 years is a long time for one job. Um, it's been great. It's been fun. It's been rewarding. And uh, if I had to do it all over again, I think I'd do it the same way. And uh, when we get to the advanced age of, that I'm at, I could be a curmudgeon now. I'm past that age that I'm allowed to be You're curmudgeon. Past the threshold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, but I, I wouldn't do it different. I really wouldn't. Absolutely. That's, that, that's beautiful. And um, yeah, I just really to, I guess, drive home the point one more time is, Mark here is for the freedom to join one if you'd like and the freedom to not if you don't want to. It's not about beating the other person down with your own ideology. It's free to do as you please. I will do as I please. And I think that's I think that's something most rational people can agree with. And uh, yeah. Yeah, man. This was a fun talk. I appreciate you putting up with uh, my rather unconventional interviews. And uh <laughs> but they're fun. It was exciting. It's fun. It's yeah. fun. Thank you, Tommy, for the opportunity to talk with you. And uh, if you feel like you want to do it again, let's do it again. Um, there's always something to talk about in this in, in this field. And and uh, I'm glad to do it. And it's good to meet you. And, you well. and good luck on your adventure. Thank You're you, on sir. an adventure. Thank you, sir. I will still be lonely yeah. and scared no matter how successful it gets. By the way, when you said you've only worked six days and this is one of them, I thought you were, just, I thought you were low-key saying like, yeah, and this podcast sucked. I was like, oh. No, <laughs> no it's burned. No, I was like. This is a good, this is a good, this is a good ending like, to a good, to a, what's been a difficult day. Okay, so, okay, yeah, good. I, I was like, know, oh, man, throw me under the bus. I was like, oof. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. no. All right, dude. Thanks so much for coming okay. on. Guys, go check them out. Um, put it in the description. Uh, I'll send you the live link. I'd love to do it again another time. And, uh, 
Till next time, everybody. Thank you so much. Keep watching me be lonely and scared publicly in front of other people that I don't know, like like Mark Nix here. Thank you so much, man. It was a great fun. Thanks. God bless right. everybody. Stay safe out there. Much love. Recording stopped. Peace. Oh, 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 oh. Recording. Is that close yet? Peace. <laughs>